Illusions have always been part of movies. If you listened to this pod before, you heard me repeat the name Georges Méliès over and over again. And yes, he was one of the true pioneers of the VFX industry. Good old Georges worked with smoke, mirrors, stop motion, double exposure, and all those effects you can create on the actual film stock in camera. But as the movie business evolved over the years, so did the visual effects techniques. Inventions like glass, matte paintings, traveling mats and use of miniatures were refined and made the visual effects better and better. But they were always performed on the actual film stock, first in the camera itself, then in optical printers. It was a very analog business. Until the birth of computers. My mind is going. I can feel it. When computers arrived, they changed the lives of all of us, and naturally also the movie business. The visual effects business soon stepped into the digital age. How did this happen? Who were the pioneers? What were the softwares that changed the industry? The ancestors of the softwares we use today? Follow me down Yellow Brick Road and find out. Welcome to the origins of the tools of the trade. Hi everybody, I'm Nils Lagerin and this is Yellowbrick Road, the golden road that leads to that wonderful world of visual effects, movies and games. Yes, today we're going to talk about a fascinating subject, software history. How did the VFX industry go from film stock to digits? How did that digital revolution start? To help me on this historic mission, I have two colleagues from Goodbye Cancer Studios in Stockholm here with me. VFX supervisor Philip Orby and CG supervisor Joachim Olsson. Welcome back to Yellowbrick Road, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Joachim, when I asked you if you wanted to join this episode, you answered, sure thing, but I need to do some reading up first, because I wasn't even born in the 90s. <laughs> so how did it go? Was it fun to dig in the archives and find the history of this industry? Yeah, it's really interesting. So many things going on, and <laughs> yeah. it has evolved at an insane speed. It has. Yeah. And what's inspiring is hearing about the ingenuity of VFX artists throughout the years. Mm. Um, how they found solutions to problems that never had occurred before. Yeah, yeah. there are like yeah. quotes from Terminator 2 that they bidded on stuff they had no idea how to do. And they truly had no idea how they should do this because mm. it's never been done before. Now when we bid on stuff, we might have problems like, oh, this is tricky, but someone has done it. Mm. And this is like, this is impossible. Yeah. But they, they made it happen. So so let's turn the clock back to the Jurassic period. Uh, sorry, the Jurassic Park period. Uh, no, no, wait, wait a minute. Let, let's turn the clock back even further. When did we see the first digital effects in movies? Well, there is one interesting first thing that's semi-computerized and semi-analog. It's mm. actually in Hitchcock's 1958 Vertigo. Vertigo. A feeling of dizziness, a swimming in the head, 
Figuratively, a state in which all things seem to be engulfed in a whirlpool of terror, as created by Alfred Hitchcock in the story that gives new meaning to the word suspense. The intro there is uh, circles and spirals that suggest that uh, there is some vertigo going on, mm-hmm. and those weren't hand-drawn. They actually used a, a World War II anti-aircraft targeting computer called uh, the M5, and they attached a pendulum to that so they could get uh, infinite perfect circles. So there was like a pen or something at the bottom of this pendulum, but it was driven by an old uh, anti-aircraft computer. So that is kind of the first computerized art that made it into a film. Yeah. But it's not uh, digital art, but it's made by a computer in a sense. And they were designed by that legendary Saul Bass. Exactly. Made lots of great opening titles. But then there is uh, the first um, digital thing ever made uh, was actually Swedish. What was it? Yeah, it's a rendering of a highway uh, from 1961. Uh, And that video was made by the Royal Institute of Technology here in Stockholm. And it's interesting, it's like a totally black background. And then there are lines that represent the highway borders, and the posts next to the highway. So you see the uh, from the car's first-person perspective, and it's just driving down the highway, a winding highway, at uh, 110 kilometers per hour, it says. Mm. So it's uh, just black and white, but it, you get the sense of 3D uh, when it moves down that uh, highway. Mm. And that's uh, super early. 1961? Yeah, exactly. Mm. And then there are other uh, more recent semi-recent examples of computer graphics. Yeah, the first time we actually see uh, the 3D model yeah. in a movie is uh, in Future World, the sequel to The Westworld from 1973. Oh, the one with Jules Brunner. Uh, I mean, the yeah. Westworld was with Jules Brunner. Yeah. 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 And Future World came out three years later mm. in 1976. Four years earlier, two guys called Edwin Catmull and Fred Park created a digital hand. Oh, yeah. uh, first they made a physical model, mm. like a cast of Catmull's hand. And then they measured the coordinates and digitized the, those coordinates. It was made up of 350 triangles. And that test was probably the first ever model in a computer of anything. Hmm. And uh, it was shaded and everything and, and animated. And animated, yeah. And that was uh, made at the University of Utah by uh, Edwin Catmull. Uh, and Ed Catmull is also now the president of Disney, I believe. Pixar. Or, Pix- or Pixar. I think even Disney. Well, he, he's an yeah, old uh, uh, computer old graphics uh, pioneer. Yeah. He's, you, you can see that the Catmull name in a lot of softwares in relation to some sort of filters or, or things like this. If you open a software made today, you can find Catmull in there. He's everywhere. Yeah, hmm. yeah but when they made uh, the movie Future World, they actually used the same of the hand yeah. and also a face that he made and just put it on the screen. Yeah. <laughs> so it's the, it wasn't made for Future World but they included their hand model. Okay. Yeah, exactly. And in, even in Westworld there is a breakthrough from 1973. It was the first use of uh, 2D computer animation. So when Yul Brenner's vision, um, it's like a Terminator kind of vision, like pixelated, uh, really pixelated, but you can uh, tell shapes that are red or yellow. And that was the first use of uh, some sort of rasterized uh, 2D thing where they could uh, create an effect for his vision. Hmm. The Westworld and the Future World are like the really first pioneers of 2D and 3D effects. Hmm. And then we can move on to maybe one of the uh, more impressive things that happened 
like uh, 1981 there's a movie called Looker which is very unknown i think but it had proper uh, 3d models of uh, a woman that been scanned and then you can see the woman as a 3d model on another screen because it's kind of like how you build a, a perfect uh, woman mm-hmm. so they they scan this uh, this woman and and represent her in 3D and they show the eyes and the the head and the hand and everything shaded and and lit and textured and it looks kind of okay especially one transition sequence when they transition from the real actor to CG or the other way around and it looks pretty good Hmm. now what? these are more ray lines for computer topographic scanners I haven't heard of that one what's interesting in the first couple of years is that almost all the use of 3D is used as uh, on monitors and like wireframe oh, yeah. models spinning around yeah some sort of to show like it's high tech it's uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly yeah. wireframe is still like a sign of, oh it's high tech yeah <laughs> so it was, uh, in 1977 they used have the death star mm. um, in the first star wars movie uh, having it in a wireframe oh yes yeah, true mm. so Yeah, and then after Looker, uh, Tron came along. And people think Tron was the first movie using computer effects, but it, it was actually Looker, if you don't count the Future World thing, where they kind of mm. added some clips. And Tron is, of course, uh, like 10 minutes of CG in it. So it's quite revolutionary. But uh, I think Tron didn't go well in the box office, and some people think that computer graphics got a bit delayed because of... Uh, that the studios didn't think that computer graphics was needed in in movies because of it didn't sell that well. Mm. Um, it was probably true. Tron was pretty revolutionary, but it, the effects were, uh, I guess, so simple that it uh, maybe didn't catch the audience's uh, vision for what computer graphics could do, or the producer's vision at yeah. least. The computer, an extension of the human intellect. The ENCOM 511, center of the most calculating intelligence on Earth. Programmed by master control to survive by all means. And then we have some other interesting examples. Uh, Star Trek 2 is pretty interesting because it's... Um, That's the Wrath of Khan, isn't it? Exactly. <laughs> With Ricardo Montalban. Yeah, I can't remember when that was released, but it's after Tron. And that has a, a one-minute sequence of a planet being birthed, kind of a genesis of the planet. So they swoop by a planet really close to the surface. So there is a fireball going over the surface. And then there is a, a land rising out of the planet and the water is forming. And it's it looks okay. You, you can definitely tell what it is. And it's very high-tech at that point. And the, some some of the effects used for the first time was... Uh, fractals like noise patterns Mm. 3d noise patterns to create the landscape and also it was the first time anyone used particle systems for the fire that swoops across the planet uh, when it's being burnt and then it's rising mountains and then water and stuff that that's uh i also think it was the first time they used motion blur yeah probably yeah (laughs) ah kirk my old friend Do you know the Klingon proverb that tells us revenge is a dish that is best served cold? It is very cold in space. And then, and we are still in the 80s here. So, yeah. so we have John Lasseter, of course, at Pixar. 
and he did a short uh, movie called Where the Wild Things Are, and he used uh, CGI backgrounds with camera moves, and then he painted the characters running around on top of that. Mm. And that's also like first taste of Pixar kind of cartoony style. Mm. Uh, then we have Young Sherlock Holmes from 1985, which is the first photorealistic CGI character, mm-hmm. uh, which is at the stained glass night. Which is a, oh yeah, that one. It jumps out from a window. Yeah, yeah from, from a church. So. Yeah, a church window. It starts yeah. to attack a priest. And, and that, that was made by Lucasfilm, which became ILM, mm. kind of. And that, that looks pretty good, I think, still. Mm. Um, it holds up. So. Yeah. Before a lifetime of adventure came the adventure of a lifetime. What's your name? Holmes. Sherlock Holmes. There's a girl. It covers the 80s, kind of. I mean, yeah. there, there were a lot of small things here and there, but it wasn't that many movies using the effects at that point. No. It was interesting to see if that the commercials did use CGI more heavily. I think. Did they? Yeah, oh. I think the commercials did push the CGI a bit. Mm. And then came the 90s. Mm. And that's when things really changed, right? Yes. Um, a lot of software that was used in the 80s were custom software from whoever made the movie. So there was no commercialized software. You couldn't like pick up any 3D tool and start modeling because there weren't any. But there were some companies in the late 80s, early 90s, that started to develop uh, 3D software for modeling, animation, rendering and compositing. The the biggest uh, competitors at that point was one company called Wavefront and another one called Alias. And then there was also side effects who made Houdini. But for modeling and animation, it was Wavefront and Alias. Also Softimarsh. Of those, also, of course, of the Marsh. So there were yeah. three big uh, companies competing for uh, the spot of making the best uh, commercialized uh, 3D software. And those softwares that they developed, uh, are they still with us, but, but evolved and changed? Uh, I think their soul is there. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, there, there is a sort of timeline with all these companies i mean, Wavefront started in 1988 and they released a program called Personal Visualizer, which was a software where you could model and render things. But then they made a software in a little bit later called the Advanced Visualizer. And that really kicked it off. You could do animation and rigging and, and dynamic particles and, and all of this. And this was like around 92. Mm. Uh, and it's interesting, it has um, component programs in that software. One is called F-Check. And if you have been using Maya, uh, F-Check is still in Maya today. Mm. So Wavefront, the advanced visualizer, merged together with Alias, who made a program called Power Animator. So Wavefront and Alias merged at one point in 95. Silicon Graphics bought them. And in 96, they, they announced the release of a new program called Maya, which should incorporate all of these uh, different programs into one. And Maya uh, was released in 98. And um, when they released Maya, that was the program they focused on. Yeah. So, 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 so that's 20 years ago. Maya has been around for 20 years. Yeah, it has code back from uh, 88, basically. Probably some <laughs> some of it is scrapped, but I mean, <laughs> if you if you look at at the Wavefront and Power Animator, it looks kind of similar to Maya today. You can tell it's it's the same program in a way. Yeah, and also looking at the first Maya one, yeah. uh, you can see the similarities with the 
yeah. Maya 2019. Mm. It's like the same core. Yeah. The same But, basics. Yeah. Yeah, and then, and then of course there were Softy Marsh, and, and Softy Marsh were uh, the true competitor to to Maya because Softy Marsh was founded in '87 around the same time as Wavefront and and Alias, and both Maya and Softy Marsh finally got bought up by Autodesk, okay. uh, so they were becoming under the same company uh, yet another time, and then Softy Marsh was discontinued in 2015. Yeah. Um, so we only have Maya left from those days. Mm. But all of these softwares were used on, on the movies in the late uh, 80s and early 90s and throughout the rest of CD history, basically. Alias software, the power animator, was uh, used mostly for modeling and soft image for animation, uh, skinning and rigging and stuff. So mm. they were used in different ways. But companies like ILM, for example, did they use these as well? Yeah, they, they used these as well. They actually chose to use Alias instead of uh, Wavefront because Wavefront was the main software that people were using. But uh, ILM chose to use Alias because it was a better modeler. And that really gave Alias a lot of cred. Yeah. And then they also made their own tiny software for a specific task and stuff. Yeah, yeah. So I think for the, the abyss, yeah. the water tentacle thing... They made their own monster software, like contained everything. It was tailor made for just making that. Oh, so yeah. it had everything you needed for just making that tentacle, but nothing more. And was never used again, or? or yeah, but then they picked it apart for the T1000 yeah. for oh, Terminator, yeah. and they used bits and parts, pieces yeah. of that program, yeah. The CPU is a neural net processor, a learning computer. But Skynet presets the switch to read only when we are sent out alone. Doesn't want you to do too much thinking, huh? Terminator 2, a classic film. You mentioned the robot T-1000. I had never seen anything like that when I saw it. How was it done? Well, it, it was done... Um, in multiple ways. Yes. Like, uh, also have several teams doing specific shots and making softwares for... For each shot. scene, each yeah, scene. each shot basically. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the um, T1000 is in his Chrome form in some shots, and they scanned Robert Patrick with something called a cyberware scanner. So they had him in high detail with all the clothes, and then they, for the different stages where he was more smooth and gooey, they kind of ran a smoothing algorithm on him, so they softened all the features, and in that way they can keep the same point uh, count and point orders so they can blend between different uh, detail levels of this uh, shiny man. So like when he walks out from the fire, he's pretty smooth and then he comes closer to the camera, you can see his shirt and all the detail uh, around him. So they basically invented some sort of blend shaping uh, for the first time, uh, I think, to be able to create uh, something that goes from like a smooth surface to a more detailed surface. Mm. Um, but at that point they didn't know how to do a lot of the things they did. So they had to write a custom shader that was reflective. This is not something they had at the time. And they had to write a tool they called um, LED, which is an interactive lighter tool. That was pretty interesting. They rendered like one frame of him with a normal map and a position pass or something similar. And then they could in some sort of real-time place lights and reflections around him and they didn't have to render it to to see the reflections because it was a kind of 2D thing 
and then they could transfer that back into a rendering. So they had to invent a lot of tools to make uh, T2. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and we can go through a few of them. Uh, I can start with uh, maybe one interesting thing was uh, a tool they called Make Sticky. So when the T2 walks through the bars in the hospital, uh, they had to project his face onto a CG model. Uh, but there wasn't anything called projection back then. Uh, there was hardly UVs. They had UVs, but so they had to basically invent uh, projection mapping. So they took a photo or something from the film and projected it onto the mesh. And the big thing was that that projection would stick onto the points of his uh, 3D mesh. So when they deformed him, when he went through the bars, the um, texture followed the mesh. Now we think this is very standard, but back then there was a tool they had to make to be able to even create this kind of effects because there were nothing that uh, could do this. Mm. Uh, so that was one tool they made. It's sticky. What is it? One tool they made was called uh, Bodysock, uh, which was also mentioned a lot because back then, when they created him, they made something called B-spline patches. So they had patches for all the major parts of his body, but when he moved, the patches didn't stick together, so it became cracks. When he bends his knee, there's a crack between the lower part of the leg and the upper part of the leg patch, Mm. and this was something that has never been done before. So they had to figure out a way to blend together the character. And they made something called body sock, where the idea was that uh, there should be like a sock uh, strapped around his basic geometry to uh, don't have the cracks in the mesh. Uh, but, but it wasn't an actual sock. It was more like they figured out that they could take the points on the ends of all of these patches and then on each frame average them together so they stuck in the middle of every frame. And in that way, they could make a mesh look like it's a full mesh instead of just patches with cracks in them when, when the bones move around. So there is a lot of like elementary stuff that they had to figure out. Mm. Now, nowadays, you can just take a model, skin it and make it move and we don't even think about it. Back then, they had to figure out every step of the way because there was nothing that anyone had done before. And this was all custom software they had to make. Mm. That's fascinating. One thing I found out that was really interesting, but since this was several years before actual motion capture came around, mm-hmm. um, they had to somehow do performance capture on Robert Patrick when he moves out of the fire. So they brought him up to ILM, painted grids on him like for reference points, mm-hmm. and then uh, had him walk up and down the road mm-hmm. and film with two cameras and had it as a reference for animatic. Oh, yeah. Basic motion capture or performance capture. And it's also interesting that obviously they choose this effect that is like shiny, like chrome, because they couldn't do uh, lifelike. It's easier with harder surfaces. And also the movement you mentioned, he's a robot, so the actor moves like little stiff. So it's genius that way, that that you kind of push it as far as you can and, and... Use the right tools to get there. Yeah, when they when they rotomated his animation, as Joachim said, they filmed him from two angles so the animator could basically rotoscope or track his movement. But the problem was that Robert Patrick had a football injury, so he had a bit of a limp. Uh-huh. So they had to remove that from the rotomation because it showed up. So and it has to be robotic and perfect. So even though they had this um, this. Uh, footage to be able to uh, animate him. They had to tweak it. And this is not something you do in real time. It takes uh, 
ages to even move something. Or like there was one example when they moved something, they have to move the vertices. This is more for modeling, but but they moved one vertex at a time in wireframe. And then when they had to preview what they have done to turn on the shading, it took five minutes just to see a shaded version in the viewport of of this wire mesh that was a model. So stuff took really, really long time. It was even though it was super simple at that point. And also opening up interface buttons, like using the interface, could mm-hmm. take like minutes just to. Yeah. You had to have Stick lots around. of patience in yeah. the 90s. Yeah. Even a, a render manager uh, like we have now called Tractor that keeps track of their jobs on the render form, it wasn't available, so they had to make one. They had to make their own uh, proprietary compositor. And the compositor on this movie wasn't like it is today that you actually can see what you're doing. It's like you, you have one image and you have a mat and you have another image. And then you, you basically say first image over second image with this mat and then third image and this and so you make a script of what the computer should do and then it outputs this uh, composited image but it was also the first movie they used uh, compositing made in in a computer it was not like a a photo process that they used on abyss so at abyss they outputted the water creature on black and then they uh, used photo techniques to uh, expose it onto the film, but that creates problems with uh, matte lines around objects. Mm. Um, but in this case, they had perfect mats because they used uh, digital compositing for the first time. So it was also a big breakthrough in in this movie. Jim Cameron has always been about pushing borders. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And he was an FX guy, so he knew and could talk to the FX uh, guys. A cool thing was when the T-1000 uh, went through the bars and then he uh, get his gun stuck. That was something Cameron came up with uh, after the fact, as I believe, when he saw uh, how the sequence turned out. So he mm. added all these small touches that really adds to the feeling like he can walk through things, but his gun can't. That, so, that whole gun thing, that's the main thing about that shot. Yeah, it right. adds it's the a, dot on the eye like yeah. to, to accompany the effect that he can go through stuff. Yeah. Go! So, let's leave robots and terminators and move on to dinosaurs. Guess we'll just have to evolve too. What do you call a blind dinosaur? I don't know. What do you call my dinosaur? Do you think he saw us? Jurassic Park. It's been mentioned many times here at Yellow Brick Road. A very important film for the development of visual effects. I'm so old, so I actually remember when I saw the film on the premiere. And when I saw that first Brachiosaurus, they see a dinosaur for the first time, but the audience saw for the first time a truly convincing digital dinosaur. It was amazing. How was it done? I mean, this was 93. So compared to Terminator, stuff had moved along a little bit. So now they could model and animate creatures using commercial softwares like uh, Alias and Softimarsh. It was probably a lot of custom things, but for some of the parts, they used commercial tools, as far as I understand. But there was one thing that was uh, groundbreaking. It was texture painting in 3D space. Because before they did 
they're painting on a flat uh, surface, like the UV tiles of the object. And the UV tiles are not connected, so it's hard to be able to create a texture that goes from one UV tile to another. It's a guesswork. So they invented something called view paint. You can spin your 3D model, and then you can uh, lock it down, and then you can paint on top of the screen, and you project back the texture on the model. So even if there is a seam in the UV, it will project uh, over both of them. And this was like a major thing for Jurassic Park, yeah, that they had a software that they could paint in 3D space. And, and this was uh, really early. They had uh, originally a program called Layer Paint, which was a Photoshop kind of tool where they could paint on 2D space. And then they had this View Paint uh, program. And they tried to combine this and made a prototype of how this could work. And then they went to a company called Parallax Software, which had a program called Matador. And Matador was a really good paint program. And they talked to them, and then they got uh, a special uh, release of Matador that they could combine with their view paint. So they had a really nice uh, painting system uh, combined with their 3D technology to be able to paint on 3D models. And this was uh, something that made it possible to take Stan Winston's creatures and put that in a smaller version next to the people painting. And then they say, copy this. So they went over every inch of this real dinosaur or uh, model of dinosaur. <laughs> physical and, dinosaur. The physical <laughs> dinosaur. And, and recreated the pattern and the paint for the whole thing. And this took a long, long time. But it, the point is that they can cut between them and they look the same mm. in, in the texture. So I think the big thing on Jurassic Park is probably a lot of big things, but texture painting to be able to create high-res textures for this dinosaur was the big thing. And these kind of painting tools didn't become commercialized until 2004 with Mari. In the latest Jurassic film, Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, there's a scene where a Brachiosaurus uh, dies engulfed in flames as the island is destroyed by a volcanic eruption. I read somewhere that they used the same 3D model for that Brachiosaurus as the one that I saw on the cinema for all those years ago in that historic first CG dinosaur shot. Uh, could that be? I think the, um, the format for 3D models yeah. could probably be the same. Mm. Yeah, But I guess it, they, we had to do a little bit of tinkering with it. But, uh, probably refined it a bit. I guess. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Maybe they used it as uh, the animation as reference for their new thing. Mm. And then they say, we used the same. Because I think that the director, J.A. Bayona, actually said that they used the same animation as well. Yeah. I mean, it could be possible. I think the, the standard formats back then were OBJ that I think Wavefront uh, created for their softwares. And, and it's we, still around. So. It's still around. We still use OBJ today. In some cases, not preferably, but it's a standard format. Yeah, but it still like, exists. So. Yeah, so, they, they, so it's, it's definitely not impossible. Possible. Yeah, and it's kind of like a, a shadow silhouette inside of a smoke, so yeah. it doesn't have to be anything else than a silhouette in this case. And it's a nice story. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> a really nice story. Yeah. It's a really, really nice story. Hope you guys enjoy each other's company. So how has the software business uh, changed since the 90s, you think? Yeah, I think we're going towards more off-the-shelf softwares mm. and probably less in-house. It depends on the scale of the companies and so. But I think having off-shelf softwares allows smaller companies and also independent developers or movie makers yeah. to make uh, awesome stuff at mm. the same level as uh, large studios. I mean, e even students yeah. back home can create amazing yeah. stuff with this. I think that um, 
a lot of technologies are developed at big companies and then ends up being commercial softwares. Mm. So I think the big companies, they use commercial softwares, but they also uh, make a lot of custom software because they want to stay ahead of the curve. Yeah. Um, and uh, there yeah. are instances of this. I- ILM has their own uh, fluid simulator for fire and smoke and they have their own animation tools and uh, hair tools and stuff because the commercial tools are not good enough for what they want to use. So they have to make some tools themselves. Even renderers. Veta uses uh, their own renderer called Manuka. And Rhythmy Hughes, uh, who made Life of Pi, who went bankrupt but still exists in some form today, they had everything uh, custom. Even their uh, their renderer, their uh, compositor, and uh, their modeler and, and uh, animator animation programs. Uh, so some people still... Uh, use a lot of custom to stay ahead of the curve. Uh, But some programs actually, like Katana, for instance, that was developed at Sony Pictures, became a commercial product that was bought by Foundry. So some of the programs find their way out of the big companies and becomes commercial products. But I think the best programs are still developed in-house in some sense. If you have an in-house software, then you can more quickly turn around and add more features. If you're in the middle of a project, notice that you miss something, then you can easily add it yourself instead of waiting for the commercial software to add it for you. But but is it still a bit like back in the James Cameron early 90s days that that you have to invent new things when you're in in production? Not at that level maybe. I think think it's more like the pre-production time is a lot longer now so they will realize that okay we have to do this effect Okay, we have done this before, but it's been painful, so we need to find a faster and better way. And that's when they developed new techniques. For one instance, which became an open source uh, project was OpenVDB, which is a way to store volumes. Mm. And that was developed at Sony, I think. So they come up with new and faster ways to create things that has been difficult before. And that's where the R&D is today, I would say, because... There isn't anything you can't do, but it can be improved a lot. Mm. And that uh, spans everything from hair shaders to how you store points or how you animate things on the GPU or end things on the GPU and stuff like this. So there is a lot of room for improvement, but I don't think there is any groundbreaking new ways of doing anything because there's always a brute force way to do it mm. nowadays. But also di- directors are also pushing movies and stuff they want more and more cooler stuff and creating more impossible yeah bigger scale yeah Yeah. so the vfx has to keep up with it yeah so well the vfx needs to evolve all the time because people get used to seeing some things and and yeah if you want to astonish people you need to push the boundaries like we try to do at goodbye kansas exactly what softwares that you use in your everyday work traces its history back to the 1900s. Yeah, um, it's Maya. Hmm. That old, good 20-year-old <laughs> yeah. Yeah, software. A, Maya is more or less the core of what we do. Like, mm, uh, yeah. We use it for animation and modeling and everything. Then we also have Houdini, yeah. which used to be called Prisps. And uh, like, even a renderer like V-Ray was born in uh, 1997. And Arnold as well, 1997, in the first versions. So a lot of stuff is really old, but it's taken a long time before they break through and and, um, and become better than the leading uh, renderer, which uh, for a long time was Renderman. 
which has gone away. It has a little bit of a comeback now, but other renderers like Viri and Arnold has taken over. They are quite young compared to Renderman, who was born in the 80s, but Viri and Arnold are from Night 7 originally. So let's look forward then. What softwares are on the rise? How, how will the future look, you think? I think the future holds standardization. Every software has always had their own way of doing things, and now it's becoming too complicated to transfer things between softwares. So standardization is a big thing. Standardized formats like EXR format is one way of it being standardized, but it's been around for a long time. So everyone saves their images in the same format now in every program. And a big thing that's coming in the future is something called universal scene description. So you can open any scene created in any program in any program. So they have the same structure of how they structure their scenes. And then I'll put that flea in a box, and then I'll put that box inside of another box, and then I'll nail that box to myself. And when it arrives, ah, <laughs> I'll smash it with a hammer! Uh, things like this, that you can open and use things created in different 3D softwares, uh, in all 3D softwares, that I think is one thing that the future holds. And it's been starting to come a little bit now. Yeah, and then we have real-time VFX, obviously. Yeah, I think real-time is also part of the future. Yeah, Maybe not in the essence of game graphics, but in actually having um, renders in real-time, like yeah. seeing uh, visual effects in real-time. and Also working in real-time, like when you texture something in like Substance Painter, then you can see what you paint in real-time. You can spin it around and see how it reflects. Yeah. That really helps speed up the production. Yeah, interactivity with the help of graphics cards probably one big thing coming. Mm. It's already here in a way, but it will be a lot better in the future. Like NVIDIA is making new graphics card which has hardware on them to accelerate uh, um, ray tracing, which is what we use for creating computer graphics. So yeah. it can be used in both games and in offline rendering as we do. And having real-time ray tracing has been considered like a holy grail, mm. which is now opening. And I also think like the future holds a lot of uh, open source softwares. Like Blender is, has been around for a long time, but it's, it's coming strong. And they are catching up with uh, the commercial softwares. And those will also probably push the commercial softwares to be better. Mm. So a more open and uh, yeah, integrated uh, software pool that can work together and uh, um, have a lot more free tools, I think, is the future as well. Great. Lots of great things to look forward to. <laughs> I don't know if they got my luggage. I mean, who knows if they got cotton underwear in the future. Oh, I'm allergic to all synthetics. The future? That's where you're going. That's right. 25 years into the future. I've always dreamed of seeing the future, looking beyond my ears, seeing the progress of mankind. Where do I? So, many thanks for coming and sharing this amazing story about our beloved software. Still can't get around the fact that Maya is 20. <laughs> <laughs> many thanks for coming. Thank you. Thank you. And you out there, thanks for listening. As usual, you can see clips from the films we talked about at our webpage, goodbyecancerstudios.com. Might be a dinosaur clip in there. Be sure to tune in next week for a new stroll down Yellow Brick Road. Until next time, goodbye, a bientôt, auf Wiederhören, wir hörs.